We have three scenes in today's text. You'll see them on your screen. Scene number one, Jesus smiling while riding on a colt. Scene number two, Jesus sobbing while looking at a city. Scene number three, Jesus slinging tables while evacuating the temple. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And this particular day in our text is why we celebrate today as Palm Sunday. There are many different ways I could break down this passage. I could also look at this section through the lens of animals. You have scene number one, a colt. Scene number two, a lamb. Scene number three, a lion. Or we could go with the three scenes with emotions. God with emotions created man with emotions. So it is no surprise that the God man has emotions. And Palm Sunday was quite a roller coaster of emotions. Scene one, we have happy Jesus. Scene two, we have sad Jesus. And scene three, we have angry Jesus. First, we find him happy, but his happiness didn't come as a result of circumstances. It was soul deep. Then we find him sad. And you say, Kyle, I thought real men didn't cry. Well, apparently, according to the text, they do. They just cry about the right things. And Luke, the heady medical doctor, is not interested in this moment in you seeing the mind of Jesus, but in you seeing the heart of Jesus. Finally, we see Jesus in the passage angry. And some of you say, God, I, I never get angry. Well, then you're probably in sin. First, because you're lying about never being angry. But secondly, because something should bother you so deeply that it produces a righteous anger. Don't picture Jesus with 80s feathered hair blowing in the wind. Picture Jesus snorting like a bull in anger because of sin. Now some of you do not get, you do get angry, but not for the same reasons Jesus did. And when that's the case, of course, it is sin. So let's take these three scenes respectively. First, scene number one, Jesus smiling while riding a colt. We will spend the majority of our time on this scene and less on the other two. For the entire book of Luke, Jesus has been headed to Jerusalem. And this text is a, a pivotal section in the gospel record. It's been building to this very moment when Jesus will enter Jerusalem. Uh, some of you have been to the Holy Land. You've been to the Holy City, Jerusalem. I've, I've never been. I'd love to visit. But actually, I, I don't believe in a Holy Land or a holy city. I do believe in a holy man. Jesus is what makes people holy. A place doesn't make you holy, a person does. And you're not closer to Jesus when your feet are in Jerusalem than when your feet are in Clarksville. This particular day in our text is why people call Jerusalem the holy city. Jesus will do something in this city that will make a way for men to be holy. And verse 29 is, is laughable. Notice what the text says. When Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Jesus tells his disciples on the way to Jerusalem, Look, fellas, I need some wheels. I'm not going to walk in. I'm going to ride in. 
And the disciples, they do the Tiger Woods fist pump. They're like, yes, finally, we're going to bust some heads. We're going to take some names. And in their minds, they see Jesus ride in like an Arabian prince on a war horse. And then Jesus continues and he says, and this is going to be my means of transportation. I want you to find a colt, a mini donkey, and ride it into the city. Now, choosing a mini donkey over a war horse is like riding in with a beat up Taurus instead of riding in with a battle tank. The disciples respond, what? A, a mini donkey? Jesus, you, you can't go in like that. You need an image consultant. You're never going to win an election this way. When Jesus says, grab a donkey, this is what they see. Jesus, you can't ride into Jerusalem like that. People will laugh at you. No one will take you seriously. Now, when you, when you zoom out, there's just, this is just a really odd scene. Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem since chapter 9 when he was in Bethsaida. So Capernaum is 85 miles from Jerusalem. Bethsaida, six miles from Capernaum. So Jesus is on a 91-mile walk to Jerusalem. And now he gets within a couple hundred yards and he asks for something to ride? My family and I went to Disney a year and a half ago just to drink the Kool-Aid with everyone else in our society. This is, this is what this scene would look like. It would be like us leaving Hopkinsville with our backpacks on and walking from Hopkinsville all the way to the Disney arch and then stopping at the arch and renting a car to take us the last 100 feet. I mean, there has to be more to this scene than what appears. And there is. This event was choreographed with an eye to the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 Zechariah predicts that the true king of Israel would come to Jerusalem on a young, unused colt. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus says in verse 31, notice what the text says, If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, what's interesting to me is that this man just let total strangers jack his wheels, take his donkey. If you were at Walmart during this coronavirus pandemic and someone just slid into your front seat and said, hey, the master has use of your Honda Accord, you wouldn't be like, okay, bring it back when he's finished. But this man does. Why is he so laid back? Well, maybe it was just culturally accepted. Maybe this man knew prophecy. And he says, go ahead, take my donkey for this coming Messiah. We don't know. We do know in verse 28 that it says Jesus continued up to Jerusalem. Now, it was not geographically up because he traveled south to Jerusalem. It was topographically up. No matter if you're coming from the south, north, east, west, it was up because Jerusalem was on a hill. And so allow me to paint this scene. Jesus and his band of brothers were, were not the only ones headed to Jerusalem. 
The population is swelling. Animals are everywhere in the streets. The smell of cooked meat permeates from every window. Think state fair with a gospel twist. Why so many people? Well, this is the time for Passover. Most say the population doubled during this holy season. So upward of 200,000 people crowding into the city. Now, how will this king enter the city? Perhaps you've heard of the African ruler named Jean Bedel Bacasa. On December 4th, 1977, in Bangui, the capital of the Central African Empire, the world press witnessed his coronation. Emperor Majesty Bacasa I. The price tag for that one event designed and choreographed by French designer Olivier Bryce was $25 million. Most project upwards of $80 million today. The procession began with eight of Bacasa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. Catherine, the favorite of Bacasa's nine wives, was wearing a $73,000 gown made by Lon Vaughn of Paris, strewn with pearls she had picked out herself. The emperor had arrived in a golden eagle couch drawn by six Anglo-Norman horses. He wore a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 pearls, and it was lined with gold embroidery. On his head, he wore a crown of laurel wreaths, like those worn by Roman consuls before him. As the sacred march came to a conclusion, Bacasa seated himself in a $2.5 million eagle throne, took his gold laurel wreath off, and as Napoleon 173 years before him had done, took his crown on which was topped with an 80-carat diamond, and he placed it on his head. Bacasa's reign wasn't near as grand as his coronation. Bacasa is just one of the many cruel dictators that we read about on the pages of history. He was overthrown, and he was eventually put on trial for treason and murder. He was cleared of charges of cannibalism, but was found guilty of the murder of schoolchildren and other crimes. He was sentenced to life in solitary confinement. Reminds me of Psalm 49:12: Man in his pomp will not remain. But Jesus Christ is a different kind of king. He's not the king everyone expected. He's not the king everyone wanted, but he was the king everyone needed. His entry was much different. No golden eagle throne, no stretch limo, no huge entourage. His glory is different. His kingdom is different. He has a different way of winning followers. How does he enter the holy city? They brought the colt to Jesus and they began to throw their coats on it. The colt didn't have a saddle, and most men in this day only had one coat, a big coat, like a Canadian winter coat. Sometimes they had to sleep outside, so they needed a thick, expensive one. And this act in verse 35 is exceedingly generous. But if it's for the king, they're willing. And it blows my mind that, that this is how Jesus entered Jerusalem. This, this colt was smaller than the donkeys people breed here in the States. A grown man would have to bend his knees so his feet wouldn't touch the ground. 
Let me give you an equivalent of this scene. Let's think back to when President Trump was inaugurated. This would be like Trump riding into D.C. on a moped, looking like Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber. Some of you have seen that theological thriller. Presidents and kings just don't enter this way. Well, why the moped, Jesus? Is this the best ride you can afford? Are you attempting to save the, the taxpayers some money? No. This whole thing, just like Picasso's ordination, is choreographed. There is a paradox in the text. When kings came to cities in times of war, they came on a mighty war horse, a terrible steeds. Riding pictured ownership and power, and the steed pictured how he would receive ownership and power. He would receive it by war. But notice that Jesus is a paradoxical king. I'm riding, but on a pony. He's taking over, but not by force. When kings came on donkeys, it meant they were, they were coming in peace. In the book of 1 Kings, David had a, a royal mule, sort of an ancient Air Force One. And David gives the mini horse to Solomon, and then he parades Solomon into Jerusalem from the Gion Springs across the Kidron Valley. And this coronation parade showed that Solomon would take over the kingdom by peace. And, and today, if you would, on the day we celebrate Palm Sunday in our text, on this Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus retracing Solomon's path across the Kidron Valley and entering to, into Jerusalem on a mini colt. This is Jesus' way of saying, calm down. I'm not coming on a war horse. That day will come. But this is my first coming. Jesus' first coming, it's a mini donkey. He's coming in peace. Jesus' second coming, it's a war horse. And he's coming in battle. Now let's just play a little game. Sometimes cities have nicknames. So I'll give you the city and all of you in the home, uh, whoever is the first one that says the nickname of that city is, is the winner. And, and the loser just makes lunch for everyone. Sounds like a good deal to me. So I'll give you the city. First one that gives me the nickname wins. New York. The nickname, the Big Apple. Chicago. Nickname, the Windy City. Raleigh, North Carolina. Nickname, the City of Oaks. Philly, West Philadelphia, where I was born and raised on a playground where I spent most of my days. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Although it's, it's, it's false if you've met any of their sports fans. Detroit, Motor City. Now, a, a final one here. Okay, this is, this is worth 10,000 points. Jerusalem. The city of peace. That's his nickname. The city of peace. But it had lacked peace. And now the prince of peace is bringing peace to the city of peace. Notice verse 36. 
And as he rode along, they spread their, their coats on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They rejoiced. How did they rejoice? Loudly. And can't you just see all these starchy religious people coming up to Jesus' followers not liking what's taking place? Saying, um, Peter, things are, getting, things are getting a little loud. We're a little uncomfortable. People are shouting and laughing and they are clapping their hands. Someone's tie fell off over there. What are, what are the Southern Baptists going to be thinking about us? We need all your crew to quiet down. They continue out. Oh, I even saw someone's hand go in the air. I, th I thought it was a, they must have a gun. That it's a stick up. But it wasn't. And then the disciples respond, no, no, no. We're just praising our king. This scene was like Bourbon Street after LSU won the national championship. Finally, in verse 39, they just out and say it. Jesus, shut them up. And in verse 40, notice how Jesus responds. I tell you, if these were silent, talking about the people, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. <laughs> this is a bit comical to me. He's saying, well, well if I shut them up, the rocks and trees will cry out in praise. And I'm not too sure you'd be comfortable with that either. Now, why will nature cry out? Because God will be praised. The whole design of the universe is that Christ be praised. And therefore, if people won't do it, he'll see to it that the rocks do. I mean, he's made donkeys talk. I'm not talking about Shrek. I'm talking about real life donkeys. He can make rocks talk. Even this is fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah writes about the mountains singing and the trees clapping. Like the craziest kids musical you've ever seen. Trees and rocks singing. Now, why are these people shouting? Because they're connecting the dots. The backstory, the prophecy. Jesus is the true Solomon, the coming Messiah, riding on a colt. They get it, sort of. It's like reading a book with 300 pages of backstory and then you finally get to the concluding chapter and the story suddenly makes sense. Drudging through the backstory was worth it all along. See, most of the time in the Gospels, Jesus is concealing his true identity to the masses. But this is his coming out party. He's making a statement. It's a proclamation. He's waving the banner high. I am the promised Messiah. And notice what the people say in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were so jubilant that they seemed to have caught some notes from the song that the angels sang at the Savior's birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And I want you to see how they sang. 
because there was a cadence to it, a, a back and forth rhythm. But there's, there's a kid's song that you may want to sing in your home today. It, it goes like this. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I should have got Matthew for this. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Pray, then the other half of the room. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Then the order switches. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. And it just goes on and on. You also sit down and stand up. It's, it's a bit confusing. But the song in our text went just like that. Blessed be the king, the other half, glory in the highest. Blessed be the king, glory in the highest. Blessed be the king, back and forth, louder and louder. Now before we move on to scene two, I want to make a point. You can't know Jesus unless you know him as king. You have a built-in heart craving for king. See, it's, you have a built-in desire for royalty. That's not a Western concept. That's a human concept. But I can illustrate it in the West. The few royal families that are left, we go nuts over them. We watch their royal weddings, their coronations, books and movies about their secret affairs. They can't stay on the shelves. C.S. Lewis helps us here. He says, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, and film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature like bodily nature will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble up poison. We have an innate desire and hunger for a king. And what is Jesus doing by riding into Jerusalem under fanfare? He's saying, if you understand me rightly, you must understand me as king. I will not come through the side door. I'm coming in like royalty. He's forcing the issue. You either crown me or you kill me. You can't like Jesus as a person and then deny his authority in your life. That's like saying, come in Jesus, but stay out king. Or, or, it's, or it's like me knocking on your door, and you open the door, and you see me, and you say, come on in, Kyle, stay out, Sharon. It's impossible. And the same with Christ. The second scene. We go from Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt to Jesus sobbing while looking at a city. I mean, talk about a, a shift of emotions. The text goes from a wedding to a funeral, from smiling to sobbing. Let these tears drip onto your hands in verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is more than light weeping. It should be translated sobbing. We talk a lot about Jesus' triumphant entry. It's more, like, it's more like a triumphant approach and a sad entry. In this one picture, you have the message of the Bible. God weeping over sins. There's a, a Rembrandt painting of the face of Christ. It's a captivating painting. 
If you cover one of Christ's eyes, his face has a sparkle of joy and hope. But if you, if you cover his other eye, it looks like he's about to cry. And if you try to look at both eyes, there are both emotions. First one and then the other. Then both mingled in a beautiful and tragic expression. That's the face of Jesus that I see on Palm Sunday. And one eye we see a sparkle. Yes, I am the king who's coming in the name of the Lord. I am the promised Messiah. This is my city and these are my subjects. But in the other eye, you see a tear. No, there will be no rain in Jerusalem. No peace, no justice, no coronation day. At least not now. I have one week to live. And even that week will not be kingly. Jesus continues in verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. In other words, an enemy will come and they'll smash you and your babies on the pavement. Jesus mourned a city sealing its fate. This sovereign Christ weeps over hard-hearted perishing Jerusalem as they fulfill his very words. This would all go down 40 years later in 70 AD. The Roman army besieged Jerusalem, conquered it, leveled it to the ground, and smashed babies on the pavement. Josephus said that Rome crucified 500 a day until the, all the trees were gone and that the bodies of the starved couldn't be buried because no one had the strength. Notice the end of verse 44. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In the Old Testament, the term visitation was used for God's coming to his people. Either to judge them or to save them. So the, the picture we should have in our minds as Jesus approaches Jerusalem for the last time is that a king is coming to a rebellious city. A hotbed of resistance against his rightful authority. And the king is willing to make peace. But only on his terms. That's scene two. Scene three. We find Jesus slinging tables while evacuating the temple. Luke intended you to read the book all the way through. And when you read the book all the way through, you would catch the bookends. See, Luke began the book with Jesus in the temple at age 12. And now he ends the book with Jesus in the temple around age 33. Uh, Jesus' real father, his, his heavenly father, met with him at age 12 in the temple. The full deity of Christ knew why he was there at age 12. The full humanity of Christ met with God and perhaps God said, this is what you're here on earth for. Little 12-year-old looking around, you see that priest over there? You will be the ultimate high priest, the full and final priest. You see those animals for sacrifices? You will be sacrificed like an animal. You will be the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. You are the full and final sacrifice. 
Look around the temple in which you're standing. You are now the new temple. People will go to you to meet with me. They will no longer meet me in a temple. They will meet me in a person. You are the full and final temple. Now have that scene in your mind at age 12. Fast forward 21 years and then we arrive at verse 45. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Malachi's words are fulfilled. The Lord goes into his temple. But why throw out the animals and the sellers? How can you have a temple and a sacrificial system without animals? Well, I'll answer that. What does Jesus put in the place of those animals? He drives them out. What does he put in the place of the animals? Nothing. He stands there all day long, all week long. He stands there. He throws out the old administration, the old way of meeting with God, and he is saying, I am the full and final temple. Verse 46, he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Have you ever seen those shows where uh, sophisticated people insult someone else? So they will, they will be wearing white gloves and they'll take their white gloves off and then they'll slap someone in the face and then they'll say, and good day to you. Slap them in the face with the glove. Good day to you, sir. This is not what Jesus did. It was not a sophisticated insult. He had a whip there was money flying, there was products flying, there was people flying. It was quite a scene. There was a lion in the temple. And this lion is driving out the serpents. He's clearing it out so that you can be brought in. You even hear it in Handel's Messiah in that bass solo. For he is like a refiner's fire. Then, then the echo he shall purify, he shall purify, he shall purify. In this temple, there were many courts. One of the courts was called the outer court. It was the court of the Gentiles. You're seeing a picture of this on your screen now. It had become overcrowded. It made worship nearly impossible, at least for the, the Gentiles. The Jews could just go on in further to, to their court. The crowded conditions in the outer court is equivalent to shopping, to shopping in Walmart during COVID-19. I mean, you can, you can barely move. The Jews commercialized the temple. They looked at God's house as a means of financial improvement or personal benefit. When they looked at people, they saw dollar signs and not souls. Some of you are Jews. We have some Jews in our church. But the majority of you are Gentiles. And Gentiles in the Bible is everyone who isn't a Jew. Jesus cleared the temple for you so that you can be included in the family. See him with the whip in hand for you. The gentle Jesus, meek and mild, turns out to be the fierce Jesus 
mean and wild. What's he doing? He's grafting you in. Notice verse 47. And as he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus had a whip, but would end up being whipped. People were hanging on his every word, but soon he would be hanging to fulfill his word. You may be wondering, Kyle, why, why don't we go to a temple today? Why don't we do sacrifices today? Well, we don't do that first because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It's just a, a pile of rubble. The second reason, the main reason, is the same reason you and I don't go back to college or to high school. We've graduated. We don't have to live by those requirements anymore. Christ is our mediator. It's the full and final sacrifice. Now let me ask you three questions in closing. The first one will be longer. The other two will be super short. The first question is this. Will you, like the crowds, misunderstand him? Luke doesn't mention it, but the crowds laid out palm branches. John, another gospel writer, lets us in on this fact. This is why we call this Sunday before Easter Palm Sunday. This was a way of, of laying out the red carpet. And also a revealer that many misunderstood Jesus. Palm branches were the equivalent of waving the national flag. Date palms were abundant in Israel and palms became symbolic of Jewish nationalism. And the waving of these palms clearly communicated the messianic hopes of the people. They wanted a political liberator. They wanted Jesus to call for tanks and drive out the Romans. You can't help but to see the political enthusiasm swelling in Jerusalem. Previously in John chapter 6, they attempted to take Jesus by force and make him king. John 6, 14 and 15. They're saying, you should run for president. We'd vote for you. And, and how could they not? Jesus fed a multitude with a sack lunch. He, he healed a bunch of people. He raised others from the dead. He's single and no kids. No drain on the economy. Today, today, what gets people more excited? Talks about politics? Or talks about Jesus? When you got up this morning, the trending news story wasn't Kyle is doing an exposition on Palm Sunday and from Luke's gospel. No. It was more talks over partisan politics and people using the coronavirus to further their agenda and build, even some Christian, and build their platform. For many people, the first thing they check in the morning is their phone to see the news. And then they're mad the rest of the day and they ran on social media because there's no good news. But we need to open a Bible and read the good news. And remember that there's a king and a kingdom over everyone. 
It's, it's fine and good for Christians to be in politics, to be sure. We have current and former elected officials in our church. But our ultimate hope is, is not in Capitol Hill. It is, our ultimate hope is it's on Calvary's Hill. You see, the people had a bigger problem than Rome. And that's what Jesus came to save them from. Jesus said, I'm not here to save you in a political way. I'm here to save you from your sins. You're throwing down palm branches and I need you to throw down your sins. I mean, as I'm reading the text, I kind of just want to pat these people on the head and break the bad news to them. Maybe you've taken some of your children to a, to a birthday party and at some point, you know, you have to lean over to them and say, baby, this party isn't about you. This isn't your party. And that's what these people need to be told. This isn't about you. Don't misunderstand this Christ or reinvent this Christ. He didn't come to throw you a political party. He came to throw himself upon a wooden tree. Will you, like the crowds, misunderstand him? Second question. Will you, like his enemies, hate him? Some of you that are listening to me, you aren't Christians. Your wife is making you watch this or your adult child is making you watch this. And I just want you to ponder some questions. Why such a hatred for a man you've never met? Why such venom for a Jew who lived in the first century? Could your hatred of Christ and his teaching be more than a local emotion? Could it be foreign? Could it be alien? Could it be inspired by an underworld? Friends, don't revel in your animosity. Find its source. Will you, like the crowds, misunderstand him? Will you, like his enemies, hate him? Final question, will you, like his disciples, worship him? Through Christ's suffering, he not only rescues us from our sin, but he rescues us for worship. And that's important. He doesn't only rescue us from our sins, he rescues us for worship. You are made to worship. You are created to worship, but sin has disabled you from doing what is most basic to your humanity. Some scholars say Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday with around 500 people. So, so go ahead and sing Hosanna, Hosanna, like the 500 people on this day. But remember that there's always a larger crowd who isn't saying that. And by the end of the week, the larger crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Church, Worship, even though the crowds try to shut you up. Worship, even though people look at you like you are insane. Worship, because your king is risen and he will deal with his enemies. Faith family, I love you. And may God give us grace to make this true of ourselves. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. 
For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.